0: If you're living as a serious follower of Jesus, then um, you should be able to think back to the last 12 months, to a time when um, you heard something said or you read something in the Bible um, that where God prompted you to make a change in your life, where you um, suddenly realised that something needed to change in a particular area, and then you decided to change, so when was that for you? Have a think about that, when that was for you. I'm talking about small changes, and I'm talking about big changes as well. The reason I can say that you will have done this you know, with a fair amount of confidence is because I can think about myself, and I can think about where I am here, and the life that I have to live to you know, um, pursue Christ-likeness, and Christ-likeness is up here, and here I am here, and I know that every day there's more and more ways that I could change and grow in Christ-likeness. Uh, The way I treat people, the way I relate to my friends and family, the way I relate to strangers, the way I use my finances, uh, my work ethic, my fear, my worries... The American author and pastor Rick Warren, some of you may have read his books, he's really well known, he said, Christ-likeness is your eventual destination, but your journey will last a lifetime. There are so many areas you can grow in that require you to make personal sacrifices. In fact, Jesus actually told um, parables over and over again, didn't he, about the high price of the Christian life, of the kingdom of God, of... Of um of of how precious it is. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his jaw he went and sold all he had and brought that field, bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had. And bought it. But Jesus also talked about, when he's talking about how costly this um, Christian life is, he talked about the sacrifice as well. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So, what we're talking about here is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls costly grace. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the fisherman who hears the call immediately leaves their nets and follows. Bonhoeffer says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true, one true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justified the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were brought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So let's just think about some characters in the Bible, one character. Think about the Apostle Peter. He understood the power and significance of costly grace. He received two calls from Jesus where Jesus said to, to him, Follow me. He said that twice. He said it once um, at the, at, by the lake of Gennesareth, and um, then he also said it a second time by the lake of Gennesareth. The first was at the start of his time with Jesus when he was doing his work and, um, and fishing and um, he, Jesus said, follow me and the call caused Peter such a life-changing experience that he let go of his nets and followed Jesus. The second time was when he was with the resurrected Jesus um, and again he was doing his old job of fishing again and Jesus called him to follow me. And it is, you know, between these two calls that Peter experiences a lifetime of discipleship. And, and you know, if we read through all the, go- the four Gospels, we get right in the middle of that period. I'm um, in Mark chapter 8. It is Peter who has this realization the first time, and he says to Jesus, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Peter was arrested by the grace of Jesus Christ. And this grace drove him to live a life fully devoted to Jesus. And he went on to lead the early church. And alongside many of his Christian brothers and sisters, he died upside down on a cross. So tradition says a martyr's death. And when we read the book of Acts, we see uh, the early church really understanding costly grace and them being um, fueled by this. So Peter, the apostle Peter, fueled by... uh, Responding to the grace of Jesus Christ, preaches the famous sermon at, at, um, at Pentecost when, at the start of the, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes and 3,000 people become Christians and join the church, which would have been, you know, a, a nightmare um, to have 3,000 people suddenly join. Imagine that for us. What would we do? I mean, the office, we'd have to get a new office. And anyway, um, morning tea roster, we'd have enough people all of, a, all of a sudden. But straight after this, we read in the book of Acts. This is what the church was like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, but as we follow in church history, if we go past the kind of end of the Bible and then and read about church history, we see that that costly grace, that, that real grace fueled attitude of the church started to kind of leak out. Um, we see that the Christianity became the official religion of Rome and so Rome owned the church and owned grace and um, that had consequences. As the Roman Empire owned Christianity, It could do whatever it wanted with it. And so the Roman church could see that it was starting to become secularised and it dealt with this issue by um, trying to um, kind of reclaim some of that hardcore, costly grace living that happened in the book of Acts and it had this idea of starting up these little enclaves of Christians who were living this hardcore life out together. We call them monasteries. The monks could do it. Monasticism, it was like a living protest against the secularization of the church. And the Roman church, unfortunately, used these monasteries to kind of justify all kinds of things. If there's ever a question about the holiness of the church, they could just point to these monasteries and say, but look at how devoted these monks are. And the lay people were never really expected to live like this. There was this kind of double standard that formed a high standard for the monks and a low standard for everyone else. And the biggest mistake the, the monastery movement made was that it set itself up as, as the individual achievement of a select few of Christians. Now, when Martin Luther comes along in the 16th century, and Bonhoeffer, he traces this whole history. It's great in the, in the Cost of Discipleship book. He, he shows how Martin Luther comes along and... Um, is one of these monks who chooses to live in the enclave, the Christian um, set-apart extra-holy lifestyle uh, in Germany. But then he realizes after studying the scriptures that this is not true Christianity. And he had to exit the walls of the monastery and enter the world again. Not because the world was, in some ways, holier than the monastery, but because he realized the monastery is the world. It's, It's all the same. And when he went from the monastery back to the world, he actually found it even harder to, to live in this kind of costly grace life amongst the people as a Christian disciple. But he knew that this is what God wanted. Before Luther, the way the church understood the authentic Christian life was that it was lived by a few select individuals in the shelter of a monastery. Now he realised that it's the whole of Christendom has to do this. All Christians have to do this, every person in the whole world who's a christian has to live with his, with a commitment and the devotion of a monk but 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 under grace not under works and achievement it wasn't it wasn't the significance of their christian life that was important it was the significance of jesus life and what he was giving them their grace the commandments that jesus gave his disciples it must be lived out Luther was transformed from inside out. He had felt deep in his soul how huge it was to be forgiven, and he wanted that to motivate his whole life. And so he started a movement, and we call it Protestantism. We've talked about it a few times this year because it's the 500th anniversary of the European Reformation. And what we see, if we keep tracing church history, is that over time what happened is the church embraced Luther's understanding of grace that it's not about being like a monk and working really 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 hard to earn God's love and that we have the grace of God and so the church embraced that but it forgot about Luther's discipleship and and the church started to slip into what we call cheap grace what Bonhoeffer coined the phrase cheap grace it started to slip into the justification of sin but not the justification of the sinner who leaves the sin behind. It started to preach forgiveness of sins and not require repentance. It started to preach baptism without church discipline. It started to preach communion without confession. This was grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. This grace was no longer the precious treasure hidden in the field, causing the person to gladly sell all their possessions so that they can purchase it. It was was cheap grace that the person sacrificed nothing for, So this is how Bonhoeffer described a Christian like this. Um, They think, Bonhoeffer, a Christian who lives in cheap grace, thinks like this, my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on Sunday morning and go to church to be assured that my sins are all forgiven. I need no longer try and follow Christ. for, For cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, which true discipleship must loathe and detest, has freed me for that. Do you want to be a Christian that is motivated by cheap grace or costly grace? You might think the big danger for Christians actually is um, religiosity. It's law-keeping. You might think the real danger for Christians is like just being obsessed with keeping all the right rules. Actually, that's not the real danger for Christians. It's not what I see. Face reality for yourself. It's not. The real problem we have is that we've been ruined by cheap grace more than we have by law-keeping. Now, this brings us to Titus 3, because Paul has a big point that he's trying to make. Over the past three weeks, we've looked at Titus, we've read through Paul's letters to Titus. Paul's explained in, in the first chapter to Titus the importance of holiness and right living and godliness for the leaders of the church, that actually it affects the whole church, and that they must teach sound doctrine. And then in the second chapter, we read about the importance of all the members of the church, the old men, the old women, the young men, the young women, and the slaves, because in the, those days they had slaves, that everyone could work together um, to live in a godly way, relating to each other, being um, humble towards each other, and Christ-like. And, the, and, and by doing that, you actually make the gospel more attractive to um, other people, to outsiders, to people who don't understand um, what the gospel is, that it draws them in. Now, Paul is getting Titus to teach the church now at the end of chapter 3, summing it all up, um, and he's teaching them about costly grace and and what, what kind of life you need to live. And he keeps saying this phrase, he wants them to do what is good. Look at verse 14. He says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And he says it all throughout the letter. He says, The false teachers were unfit for doing anything good. One verse, chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, Titus is said an example by doing what is good. Chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus Christ gave himself to purify a people who would be eager to do what is good. Chapter 2, verse 14. The people should obey the authorities and to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul wants those, to have, um, wants those who have trusted in God to be careful, to to devote themselves to doing what is good, chapter 3, verse 8. It it says it over and over again. Doing good works, it's more than just dealing with the false teachers in Titus. It's actually about your whole life as a community. So in this last chapter, Paul brings the themes um, of the whole letter together. And he adds some chili on the top. I like to add chili on the top. Look at verse 1. He takes it further. He says, Remind the people to be subject to rules and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. So now he's expanding this whole idea because previously he's been talking about church members relating to church members. Now he's saying even the rules and authorities you had to relate to like this. What has previously been true for, you know, slaves and their masters, now you can think about it in terms of you and your boss at work, you and your school prin- principal, you and the Prime Minister of Australia, strangely enough. The, the Apostle Peter backs up Paul here. I listen to this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who are doing wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So Peter even uses the phrase slaves. He compares being a Christian to being a slave. But you're a slave to God. Live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. Wow. So this means we should be law-abiding as Christians. We don't dodge our taxes. We don't try and think we're above the law. Uh, It means we should show respect to our authorities and be good citizens in the workplace and in our neighbourhoods that we should realise that the goal of the Christian life is not to gain political power and dominance, but it's to live peaceably. And if we do this, according to the whole book of Titus, we will make the gospel more attractive to outsiders and we will get a good reputation, but also we'll be glorifying God and living as we're supposed to live in response to God's grace. I'm always careful that, as Mary Creek, we're, we're good citizens to Clifton Hill Primary because um, I want them to be to think well of us and to be attracted to us um, more, to be attracted to the gospel, but especially to think that we're good citizens. And so this is why I think we should all come next Sunday to help clean up. And I know the last four years or however long we've been doing it, we've done it, and they love the fact that we, we do it. They, they think it's amazing. They can't believe that people would go out of their way to help. Um, and that's why... You know, at the end of the service each week, we go around and check that it's, we leave it better than we left it, we started with it at the start of the service. Um, because we want to be good citizens. And this applies to all contexts of life. Now, there is some things to think through here. Because submitting to the rules and authorities does not mean the following it does not mean that we remain silent in the face of evil. So I'll bring us back to Bonhoeffer because he has a lot to say about this because, you know, he understood the complexities of submitting to the authorities living in Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer said that for the Christians, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. So to not say anything about the gas chambers in Nazi Germany, which many Christian middle-class Christians didn't say a thing, um, some didn't know about it, but some did know about it, was to be um, complicit with the Nazis. Not to say anything about Manus Island is to be as evil as the people smugglers and the government that locks people up and throws away the key. It's not to remain silent. Submitting to rules and authorities means not that we just bandage the wounds of the oppressed and the victims, but that we take on the system that put them in that situation. I know for Jo, um, for her whole life thinking about justice, she has often been drawn towards the system. How can we change the system? Because if we can change the system it can have the maximum impact on the whole world. And that's why for her being in the climate talks in UN, where she's been in the last week, is significant because these are the world leaders who make the decisions that are going to impact so many people around the world. Submitting to rules and authorities does not mean that we are not revolutionaries. Bonhoeffer said, Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and pride of power, and with its plea for the weak. Christians are doing too little to make these points clear. Christendom adjusts itself far too easily to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense, shock the world far more than they are doing now. How are you shocking the world? ask you that question. Submitting to rulers and authorities does not mean that we stay silent. It does not mean that we are a secret Christian at work. It doesn't mean that we are undercover, and it doesn't mean that we don't have a voice. We must finally stop appealing to theology to justify our reserved silence about what the state is doing, says Bonhoeffer, for that that is nothing but fear. Open your mouth for the one who is voiceless, says Bonhoeffer, for who in the church today still remembers that this is the least of the Bible's demands in times such as these. Submitting to rules and authorities does not mean that we avoid costlier discipleship. Bonhoeffer said this, these simple words, which are to define his life and should define your life and my life. When Christ calls a person, he bids them to come and die. So cheap grace is submitting to rules and authorities and keeping a low profile and ignoring injustice and not standing up for the persecuted and allowing suffering and being complicit with the oppressors. Costly grace is submitting to rulers and authorities and risking your life to stand against the systematic violence in the world and persecution and prophetically and tirelessly standing up for those who are suffering and bringing about kingdom of God change. Cheap grace is a short-term mission trip to a remote Aboriginal community where you see malnourished kids and poverty in the long-term effects of colonisation and domestic violence and disease, followed by no personal response. Costly grace is devoting your life to Aboriginal reconciliation and justice. I could go on showing you the comparison. So why do we live like this? Well, it says it in the passage. Paul explains... That it's because of the grace that we received look at verse three to seven because you might be thinking why should i be subject to my boss at work who's not even christian who acts so um awfully to so many people and and is mean and snappy and all oh, my boss all she cares about is her pay packet to to you paul says this verse three at one time we too were foolish disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures we lived in malice and envy being hated and hating one another To the Christians in Crete, he's saying, you were no different to the rulers and authorities in Crete. You were just like them, verse 4. But, he says, when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that, verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, it's all about grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So just like the Apostle Peter, whose life had been transformed by the grace of Jesus and caused him to drop his nets and follow Jesus, so you have been justified by that same grace and should now live a life in response. And he says in verse eight, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful. Here we go. This is the main point of the passage, to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. So Paul goes on to wrap up the letter. He returns once more to the issue of the false teachers, making sure they're weeded out of this church. He warns Titus not to get mixed up in their controversial teaching. He gives some final instructions about the people that Paul has sent with the letter. Um, and it's common for Paul to talk like this at the end sort of bits and pieces at the end of his epistles and then one more time he just says it again he just throws in an extra you know I'm just going to give you a just say it one more time in case you haven't got it verse 14 our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives so to finish in light of what Jesus has done for you in turning your life around, in saving you, in giving you his grace, in accepting you despite your flaws, let me challenge you to devote yourself to doing what is good. Don't be a cheap grace Christian that accepts the forgiveness but puts aside the discipleship. Don't be a cheap grace Christian who comes to church for one hour every week or every second week or every third week and then goes home and lives a life of hedonism and sin and selfishness. Don't be a cheap grace Christian that turns a blind eye to injustice and stays silent and complicit with the oppressors. Realize the cost of grace. Devote yourself to doing what is good. Come to Jesus and die. Let's pray, everyone. Lord God, thank you for the book of Titus, that we've been able to look at that over the last three weeks and be encouraged by such simple teaching Um, from Paul to um, Titus to his co-worker and and friend um, and son in the gospel and we pray that we can live it out, that we can actually do the simple thing of responding to your grace and do what is good, um, um, to love each other and love the people around us and honour our authorities um, and to actually also um, take a stand where we need to take a stand and Stand up for the, those who are oppressed um, and, and understand what it is to really um, make difficult decisions that require sacrifice in response to your grace. Amen.